Hey everyone, and welcome to the Cooper Cole podcast, where we delve into the practices of Canadian and international artists in conjunction with their exhibitions at our gallery. My name is Magdalena Asimakis, and I'm the Director of Research and Artist Relations at Cooper Cole, a contemporary art gallery in Toronto, Canada, that was founded in 2012. This episode features a conversation between myself and the San Antonio-based artist Daniel Rios Rodriguez. Rios Rodriguez's works are extensions of his context. The materials he uses are purchased or found in his immediate environment and often include found wood, stone, terracotta, glass, rope, and nails in addition to paint and canvas. The works intentionally touch on disparate motifs from the history of painting including landscape, still life, and self-portraiture. Rios Rodriguez's dreams, which he explains are mostly about landscapes, spill into his work as well, and imagery can veer into the fantastical and surreal. Rios Rodriguez received his BFA from the University of Illinois at Chicago and an MFA from Yale University. He was the recipient of the 2013 Louis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Award and has exhibited at galleries and museums internationally. Select gallery exhibitions include various small fires in Dallas, Curlin Gallery in Dublin, Camden Art Center in London, Nikel Bouchen Gallery in New York, Lulu in Mexico City, Hannah Hoffman Gallery in Los Angeles, and Martos Gallery in New York, among others. Select museum exhibitions include the San Antonio Museum of Art, the Palais de Tokyo, the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston, and the McNay Art Museum. Daniel's current exhibition at Cooper Cole is presented in our East Gallery and includes 11 new paintings and two drawings. The works are brightly painted, range in scale and shape, and the smaller works are playfully hung at different heights. In his paintings, Daniel includes materials like wood, terracotta, rope, stones, and other found materials from his immediate environment. These materials are often painted and included in the imagery. The motifs in the series of paintings include shells, suns, birds and feathers, and symbolic landscapes in vibrant colors. We are recording this interview in conjunction with Daniel's exhibition Father Time, currently on view at Cooper Cole in our West Gallery until July 30th, 2022. So here it is. I hope you enjoy. Nice to have you here and to be able to speak to you about this incredible new york new work of yours thank you <laughs> <laughs> um it might be helpful for those who are uh, maybe just becoming familiar with your practice uh if you could tell us a bit about it just generally um how you approach your work and how you've been working the last few years uh let's see where do i begin um that's funny i was asking myself that question when i was driving here uh, to my sister's apartment to do the recording, like the question, where do I begin? Because uh, it's not, I, I don't think it's, it's very easy for me to kind of jump into it. Maybe this is true for all artists, but it's very easy for me to kind of like jump into my own um, story of myself or the things that I tell myself rather than talking about the work. And I feel like because these things are kind of inseparable, I'm never really quite sure what is the appropriate place to start. You know, um, you know how you see in those those comedies, those movies where, you know, someone will ask how someone is doing, and then they suddenly just begin to unfold like a lifetime worth of stories, and the person would really just wanted to know how they were feeling in that moment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's where that's where I'm always at. Is that how do I how do I gauge like um, the level of like interest? within a conversation about my work and how much does it really have to do with me? 
you know, uh, because ultimately it's, you know, my work is about me and my work is about my family. My work is about the things that are closest to me. But I think in the end, people are, are interested in the work on its own outside of kind of like my face and my existence. And I think that it's the way that the work should live. Um, but at the same time, those two things inform each other so much in your work. So it's hard to yeah completely too. Yeah, I, I don't, and you know, I don't know, honestly, I, I want to say that like, this is not the case for a lot of artists, but I don't really know for sure. You know, like, um, you know, I think, I think some people have a very kind of, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but like a detached practice, a detached way of thinking about their work where they, they kind of, they, what is in the studio lives in the studio and what travels home with them is someone different, something different. Um, and I kind of, I don't know, I think that's, it seems maybe like a nice way to work. I don't, I don't, I don't prefer it, but maybe that's just because it's not, that's just not how I operate. You know, I can't kind of divide up my thoughts that way. And I don't know anything else well enough to paint anything else. You know, the thing that I know best is uh, my children and my kind of circumstances and my surroundings, and then the materials that I work with and trying to kind of outsource what it is that I do and attach that to anything else other than my own history and my own ideas is a really difficult task, you know, because then I'm having to own up to something that's much bigger than me. Um, yeah, know. that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, and I think the description that you're, you know, the practice that you're describing of the separate studio from life is a, is a, I hope I can say this without offending anyone, but it's kind of an old fashioned way of thinking about art, you know, that yeah. it's detached from our everyday lives when in fact it art emerges from the material conditions of life. So right, right. It's to be honest about that. Yeah, it's it's almost very workmanlike, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, people show up from like nine to five and they clock in, they clock out and um, and they do their research. And, you know, for me, it's like the research is always it's constant, it's consistent and it's very fluid. And whether I'm, you know, painting or kind of like cutting my grass and or teaching my kids how to like trim kind of like, you know, the shrubs or whatever it is, like it's it's all somehow finding its way into not just the material, but like the, the content and the energy of my paintings. And that's and that's something that you can't clock out of, you know, I mean, and it's not to say that I'm always with my kids and that I'm always kind of like in service to them and they're always with me and that I'm always painting. It's not like, you know, I don't have 10 arms and I'm doing all of these things at once, but I, I don't know. I feel like there's just like a real blend of, of energies that's, that's, that are happening that make me kind of more aware, I think, at least for myself from one moment to the next, how I'm going to integrate it into the painting. I'm not shutting it down and saying like, well, this is me time and this, and me time means that I'm making art, you know, like all of the time is kind of me time and all of the time is art time and all of the time is time to paint and to think and, and, uh, and also not really be too serious about it in a way, you know, where I have, you know, where one shows up to work and they have to put on their work face and their work hat and their work tie and kind of do all those things that work says that you have to do. You know, I can, I'm, I'm fortunate that because of where I live in, in San Antonio, Texas, it's, I, I don't really have to go anywhere else or do anything else. And I can really just focus on the studio. Um, yeah. And I don't really have to report anywhere else other than to like be with my kids and pick them up and hang out and, 
And again, that just feeds directly into the work in one way or another. Um, I don't know if that answered any of your question at all, but um, it does. I mean, it lays <laughs> it, it lays such a good foundation for understanding where you come from, right? So it's like uh, going from that, like you know, describing your work as something that's it, it's painting, um, but it also incorporates not like so-called non-traditional materials as well. So, like you're talking mm -hmm. about you know, teaching your kids how to like trim the shrubs. In my mind, I'm like, probably there's a piece of that shrub in your work as well. Oh like, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's like, and there's like, just getting them to, to learn how to use tools is a way of kind of like me trying to design a kid that can help me in the studio to paint rope and trim other things that I need trimmed, you know, as a studio assistant when they're old enough. Like right now, like, you know, they're, <laughs> my, my, my two oldest are 15 and, and almost 14. And, you know, they help out every once in a while, but they, I, I can't trust them kind of like with sort of the detailed work. They're, they're just a little bit too lazy right now. And so I kind of have to like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's like a very like karate kid sort of scenario, you know, like it's, you know, if you remember the very first karate kid where Mr. Miyagi has, you know, Danielson painting the fence and he's like, what the fuck am I painting the fence for, you know? And, and at some point, like he's like defending himself using these paint the fence moves it's that's sort of what I'm that's what I do with myself and, right. uh, and I think that's how I learned how to paint is by doing other things um, but it's also like how I'm raising my kids and of course I you know like I say it jokingly I'm not trying to get them to be my studio assistants but I know that the time that I spend with them doing things has a lot to do with what it is that I want them to be able to do not just for me but for themselves right so the whole painting the paint fence things I think it kind of rings true when when it comes to raising children is what can you what things can you teach them about kind of just being and living uh that when they are on their own in the world defending themselves or projecting themselves onto the world uh, or just trying to integrate themselves how can they use the lessons no matter how small or big um or seemingly like useless how can they integrate that into just an everyday practice of being you know and that's difficult, I think, and that's that's scary because you know you 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 will almost never know, you know. It's um, it's definitely not a straightforward thing to teach them. It's not. It's not. I mean, you 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 would like to think that it would be, and that you could just tell them once, and that they would learn it, and then you can trust that that one lesson that you gave them would carry them for the rest of their lives. But it's just not that way, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think somehow for this for me, this all relates to painting. Is that you can't really you can't really kind of be taught any one thing in painting and expect that one or two lessons, those things that you learned, whether it was in school or on your own, you can't let that thing be the thing that carries you forever. And I think it's important for an artist or a person in, in general to be able to take kind of the lesson as just sort of the foundation of something that you have to build on top of as you keep busy in the studio and as you become kind of in contact with more people you know as you're just sort of bumping around the world uh you you just sort of have to live off of the foundation so you yeah. know the foundation the foundation is important you know? yeah and then then how do your um just to you know keep on the topic of your children too because i know they influence your work a lot and life um how uh, you know do they appear in your paintings not physically not you know not representationally but just like mm -hmm. How do you, how do the, how does the influence of your children, let's say, uh, sort of slip into your work? 
mm -hmm. uh, visually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a variety of ways, but I think, you know, I think first that they, they slip into the work kind of like numerically, right? So like if I'm, you know, with the last show, uh, with the show that's up right now, you know, there's a painting. Oh, I forget, I forget the title of it now, but it's a dark painting. It's kind of like split in half diagonally. It has a black side and a red side and it has three shells. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, if I paint one shell and I begin to think of that one shell as a relationship to one of my kids or a person, I immediately feel a sense of guilt. Uh, and I think, well, I have to do two shells. And because I have three kids, I have to do three shells. And now the painting is suddenly about like all three of my children. And, you know, it's in the, in the same way in which, you know, like right now I'm working on a new series of smaller paintings for a show I have coming up and I'm making a painting uh, that just happens to have something that resembles like a shark fin. And my daughter, Paloma, she's really into sharks. She's obsessed with it. Um, and as soon as I started making that painting and I realized that this was something that was about her, I realized, well, now I need to make another painting about my sons, you know, both of them, um, each. They, they, now, they now have to have their own individual paintings. I can't leave one out. It's like, you can't take your kid to go get ice cream. You have to take all the kids to go and get ice cream, you know? And if you take one on their own, then you have to take the others on their own. And, and that sort of like strikes a balance within parenting. But for me, it also strikes, it's a, it's a way for me to strike a balance within painting. It's a way for me to kind of understand how to use not only what it is that's close to me, but also how to kind of just navigate the mechanics of the painting itself, right? If I know that I'm going to make a painting about my kids and I'm interested in making a painting with shells, I know that there has to be three shells. And then now it, it becomes a question of how do I organize these shells and how do I organize all of the other elements that make up the nature of the painting? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what that's one way. Of going about it. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's a really beautiful example and interesting in relation to what you were saying about, you know, learning the skills of painting and then building on that, like how you create mm -hmm. your own language. And um, I guess I'm, I'm curious about your approach to painting, you know, um, if you can sort of describe how you took the sort of lessons and mm -hmm. built your own visual language and style. Mm -hmm. I I think I've always thought about my my approach to painting as being a bit haphazard and not really because of where I started, where I studied. I first started at a community college, um, and you know my first painting class was taught by a man uh, who went to the Art Institute, you know, Art Institute of Chicago, studied abstract painting, and basically came back to teach. And really, he just told everybody, buy big buckets of paint and just make big abstract paintings, right? And there were really no lessons outside of that. I mean, he would give us the sort of like brief art history tutorials and talk a bit about paintings, but you were always just sort of like flinging paint around and just trying to figure out like, is this good? Like, I don't know, is this good? You know, and everybody's just looking at each other. Well, I think this is good for this or that reason. And we all just ended up making kind of like really bad abstract expressionist works. I mean, they were terrible, but they were gratifying because it was new and the sensation of it being new and that drive to do something that felt good, even if it resembled something else was a powerful feeling to have. And then I went to uh, the University of Illinois, Chicago, and that was a much more conceptual school. 
And it's, you know, the people that I studied painting with were really not interested, I don't think, in teaching us painting technique as much as they were interested in getting you to understand what are you doing in the first place and why are you doing it? If you're going to commit eight hours uh, to a painting for, you know, for a class or for an assignment, and then you're going to ask everyone to spend an hour looking at it, you, you sure as hell better be able to articulate what it is that you did for eight hours and why the hell we should be looking at it for an hour. Right. And so you end up spending a lot of time reading, but also just asking yourself, like, why the hell am I doing this? You know, and, you know, that becomes kind of this an internal dialogue that you develop. And, you know, maybe those are, you know, in part defense mechanisms, mechanisms and, uh, you know, and other and, and in another sense, they're also just ways to legitimize and validate and kind of like comfort yourself that what, what you are doing is valuable. But there was really no painting technique inside of any of that training. And then graduate school was kind of the same way. You show up the painter that you are, and they're, they're just sort of trying to kind of like help you figure out what that is. Um, and so I think when I started making paintings, you know, early on in college, it was the, the energy that I used then was just really an energy of discovery. How, how close, at first it was how closely can I get my paintings to look like other great paintings? that's always the objective of a student, right? It's like, you feel really good when you make something that resembles, you know, like a beautiful glowing Mark Rothko or Jackson Pollock or Marsden Hartley or whatever, like that, that feels wonderful. And then at some point you realize that you have to stop copying people and you have to begin to do your own thing. And then you start shutting off, you know, your, uh, uh, the people who inspire you and you end up just trying to kind of venture out and experiment on your own. And I think for me, because I've had very little instruction in painting technique, it became very easy for me to begin to integrate a lot of other things into the format of painting um, without questioning whether it was a, like a, a valid way to approach it at all. It's just, I'm just there doing something that feels right. And because I really consider myself as someone who likes to work with their hands, um, it, it became easy for me to kind of integrate wood and rope and rocks and things and you know, I, I don't know. I feel like you enter into kind of a different kind of poetic territory when you're not so focused on illusion and you're not so hell bent on history and you're not so kind of driven by a philosophy uh, that is external to your own abilities with your hands. And for me, it's really a lot about the hands and it's a lot about kind of like my own position in the world, right? And my position in the world, just like everyone else, is very small. And so why think bigger than like my immediate context? Why think bigger than kind of the very small bubble that I functioned in, which is to say my family. Um, and so I, I think my approach to painting has everything to do with just what is it that is in reach, you know, uh, to me right now, you know, like I can pick up a stone and I can pick up kind of mountain laurel beads and I can pick up cardboard and I can pick up paint and brushes and I can think about my kids and I can think about the trees and the river and all of these things are reachable. I can either touch them, you know, because they're at, at arm's length or I can drive to them or ride my bike to them or I can run to them. And they're, none of those things are far away. Yeah. Uh, or I can look up in the sky and I can see it. It's there. I, I can touch it with my eyes, but I don't really have to go too far to think about what I'm going to make. Um, I don't have to dig into any books and I don't have to kind of ask anybody else to confirm whether I'm on the right track or not, because it's all just sort of derived from my immediate context. Yeah. And so there's an authenticity to it that you don't have to like confirm through history. Or yeah, something. not at all. Not at all. Like I don't need, yeah, yeah. There's, there's just really no desire at all for kind of 
confirmation from anybody that what I'm doing is, you know, um, like it, whether it's on the right track or not, it's just, yeah. you know, it's Which is like, what a great space to be in. And I like the way your work has a sort of porous relationship to your local landscape um, and your life. So yeah. just to be more specific, like your paintings will include uh, objects and materials you find around you, which you've touched on, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also paint them and uh, make them part of the image. So I can yeah. a bit about this. Like I, I like <laughs> that sort of ability to, to sort of oscillate between, you know, landscape and art. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I first moved back from San Antonio from uh, New York, I was in New York for three years. My ex-wife, she was in graduate school. We were there. That's when I first started showing. Uh, and then when I came back from New York to San Antonio, we had split up and I was spending a lot more time alone. I was spending a lot more time on the river, going for walks, running, biking, just being outdoors quite a bit. Uh, and I also just had a lot more time. And, you know, I mean, and there are a lot of other factors too, like my studio space was much smaller. Uh, the, the scale that I could afford to paint on uh, was much smaller. You know, everything just sort of changed. Like, you know, when, I mean, that just happens in relationships when you get a divorce or you separate from somebody and that you're with for a long time, everything just sort of becomes uprooted. And it's like anything else that you pull up, uh, by its roots, you're going to pull up other things. You're going to pull up rocks. You're going to pull up trash. You're going to pull up maybe broken glass, you know, old pennies and nickels, anything that you, that might have been happened to have sunk into the ground at the time of planting or, or over the course of that thing being in the ground. And I felt like once I was uprooted, there were all of these things that kind of like fell away, but there were also a lot of things that I discovered that I could integrate into the paintings. And I think all of those walks and all of that time spent outside really helped me to figure out not only why I want to paint, but how I was going to paint. And it took a really big turn for me to be able to um, begin to think about materials as a part of my kind of everyday approach to painting. Uh, and, and going back to what I was saying earlier, where, where I didn't really have an understanding of technique, you know, uh, illusionistic technique or really good color sense, um, you know, I could find a piece of plastic or I can find a piece of stone or I can find anything that kind of would sing to me as it sat there in the ground, right? So you can find, you know, it's like seeing a shell and you think, well, there's a thousand shells, but this one is really beautiful. How can I put this beautiful shell into a painting? But now how can I make that the life of that shell also be worthy of having been moved from the sand that it was in and also feel really vibrant inside the life of the painting. Right. And so it becomes like this kind of competition between the painting surface and the shell or the bead or the stone. How can I make this thing kind of sing um, and be something inside of the painting? And I think that's always kind of what I've aspired to do is how can I integrate these things, not just for the sake of like, oh, because I'm interested in rocks, um, at that moment, that rock really, it, it said something to me. And I, and I really want, I really want to understand what it's like to be able to make that thing say the same thing to everyone who sees the painting, right? Because I certainly can't bring everybody to the river bank or to the dirt patch that I was in and say, Hey, look at this rock that I just saw. Do you see it? Look, look how beautiful it is. And once you remove it from its context, it's, it's insignificant. And even if you did bring everybody there, nobody's going to really care. It's like, yeah, it's just another fucking rock. Like what's the big deal, you know? Yeah, um, feel it differently. Or over- yeah, it's it's, a, it's like a flower, you know. It's like you know, people walk by. I mean, Toronto's filled with gorgeous flowers. When I was there, I couldn't get over it, you know. And it <laughs> seems like, well, it's 
you know, San Antonio is not that way. Like we have our own kind of like landscape, which is unique, but you know, it's not as fragrant and it's not as kind of like colorful as, as Toronto was, at least when I was there, you know, just over a month ago or about a month ago. Um, so how do you make that seem some, like something that you just don't walk by? You know, how can you stop people in their tracks and say, this is a rose and you should look at this rose and you should pay attention to it and smell it and appreciate it and take a picture of it and keep it with you and then move. Um, that's a difficult thing to do, but that's always what I, I think that's what I want to do is to kind of make, make my paintings be and live sort of like a rose, you know, not something that you're going to necessarily take with you forever, but something that you're going to stop at, appreciate, smell, look at. And then also remember all of the other roses that you saw and like maybe the places that you were when you saw those roses. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that, and then your, I think that also brings up like how uh, maybe the objects or motifs that come up in your work are sort of um, have like hybrid representations, you know, they're not meant mm -hmm. to represent themselves or represent an idea necessarily, but more how a shell, for instance, can mean multiple things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, I think this is just sort of the way that we live, you know, it, it's, it's, you see things, and, you know, you pass by places and you see things that remind you of other things or other people or events in your life. And, you know, if you live in a city long enough, or if you, if you kind of, uh, I don't know, I mean, if you're just in the world long enough, paying attention, you begin to see things that remind you of a previous life that you lived. And, you know, as I drive around San Antonio, I've been here for eight years consistently now, you know, I can, I can drive around and remember buildings and look into doorways and look in at trees and say, you know, I was with somebody at this moment. I was having a conversation at this moment. At this moment, you know, uh, when I lived in that house, you know, my children were, you know, such and such age. You know, it's, there are all these kind of symbolic markers. And really, they're just doorways and they're just trees and they're just sort of river bends and they're just kind of things that you pass by. And I feel like, you know, that, because we all do that, why not also do that in painting? You know, why not let the shell function as a representative of, of what it is that I am and who it is that I'm with? Yeah. Um, you know, a tree or a shell is not gonna mean the same thing to anybody else. And, you know, in that sense, painting has to function as a painting on its own outside of my own kind of system of meaning. It has to be relevant in some way and important to somebody yeah. uh, for themselves. Uh, you know, but that after that, it's really not, it's not really up to me for me, you know, I don't need people to understand why I'm painting things, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess I'm curious, that sort of leads into another question I had uh, for you, um, just around context and, you know, because your work is so connected to the context in which it's made and um, your studio as you, suggested is larger mm -hmm. than yeah. it was able to be in New York. And so your work oh, yeah. sort of expanded um, in ratio to that. But I'm curious then, like, how does it feel when you go from your studio in San Antonio, which maybe you can describe a bit, but and then to see, you know, your work in a sort of white cube space, which you do very much. Um, what is that? Mm -hmm. How does that live for you? Like, what does that shift feel like? 
it's it's kind of frightening <coughs> because it's you know because I you know the my studio space I mean it's you know I I bought an older smaller property um, and I gutted a house and I turned the house into my studio and it's got lots of like wood finishes and you know like it's got like a cedar lined ceiling and it's open it's spacious it's not huge it's only you know maybe 900 to 1000 square feet but you know it's sort of a charming space there's lots of plants there's lots of like i have nice skylights and there's all of these things that when you walk in at least for me i feel really good and it's a nice space to be in uh though it's a very hot space at the moment because it's you know i have too many skylights and i'm letting in a lot of heat you know and it's really hot in texas right now um Anyhow, that, that's that's the place where these these paintings are kind of are born. You know, they're surrounded by all of these other warm textures and plants, and there's so much life and energy inside that space. And so, it, when I make the paintings and I'm looking at the paintings, I'm also looking at all of these other very charming and warm and kind of like beautiful things. Some of the things that I had nothing to nothing to do with, right? Like you know, a, you know, a fiddle fig is beautiful all on its own. Like it doesn't need like I need to water it, but like, it's a beautiful plant, you know, like it, it's, and if you put it in a corner, it's just going to liven up the corner. And if my painting is living next to the fiddle fig, as I'm painting it, it kind of, it inherits some of the energy as it lives next to that fiddle fig. Uh, you know, but what, if you move it outside and away from the fiddle fig and you put it just kind of in this white cube and you put it on a white wall, uh, you know, you don't know how much of the painting was reliant and dependent on the energy of that plant. And, you know, so there's always that sense of anticipation is that like in the absence of all of these living things and in the absence of this kind of this curated uh, and crafted space, how is this painting gonna live on its own uh, on this white wall? And I would, you know, Fortunately, I am always relieved when I get, you know, to the gallery and I hang up the paintings and I think, oh, fuck, like, thank God. Like, it's, it's not, you know, like it's, <laughs> it, it has a life. It took the energy of the fiddle fig and it brought it with it, like all the way from Texas, all the way to Toronto. Yeah. Like, and it's still alive. Like the painting is still living, you know, um, but it's a difficult thing to, to navigate because, I mean, I can't off the hand, uh, off, you know, off the top of my head, think of like any paintings that didn't uh really work i mean there are some that when i see them in the gallery they're better you know and then when i or when i see them in the gallery i think well it's not as lively as i thought it was but it you know it also just it's energy is maybe it's just a bit more tame um you just read them a bit differently you know yeah. but, but you know once viewed with the you know with the local context that they came from you know it's uh like just to go even to our earliest point about like material conditions it's like it's mm -hmm. in here even though it might read differently or be surrounded by a different context, there's still um, a sort of DNA to where it was born and how it was. Yes. Born. Yeah. 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 I mean, and for, you know, for me, this really, I mean, I cannot help but to think constantly about how this relates to like raising children, you know, it's, you know, you think about, you know, you, you raise your children and you communicate with them and you try and teach them the things that, that are important to you. And you just don't know how they're going to live out in the world when they're on their own. And it's very rare that as a parent, you get a glimpse of how your, how your people, how your children that you spent so much time and energy with and who have developed a sense of being when they're with you, how they exist in the world without you. And the hope is that when they do go out, um, you know, that they're, 
that they're good, that they're decent people, that they're well-behaved, that they're not out kind of like, I don't know, terrorizing people. I mean, I, ju I just got a compliment the other day from a friend who said he ran into my kids at the grocery store and he said they were very polite and very cordial and they're like really sweet kids. And I was like, thank God. Like, you know, like I like it's like I, I believe that about my children, but I also know the other side of my children. Like I know how they could be real rascals at times and like, yeah. you know, sometimes be really indifferent. They're teenagers like they don't really care about the adult world and they shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when he said that he ran into them and like, you know, that that they were like polite, I thought, OK, like that's yeah, that feels good. Yeah, that feels good. Yeah. It's like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, if you said that, like, you know, and he probably wouldn't have said if they weren't polite, you know, he probably just would have been like, Daniel's kids are little shits, you know, but, you know, that or wasn't the nothing. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't say, yeah, I wouldn't say anything at all, you know, so the fact that he was able to kind of toss out a compliment to me about them was a good thing. And I think that it, that's how the paintings should live as well, is that you hope that they're going to kind of survive and live out there in the world and be good and exist on their own terms as individuals. Um, and if someone shoots you a compliment and says this painting looks really good in such and such space, that's a that's a great thing. And if you don't hear anything, well, you know, I don't know. It's better than hearing anything negative, I suppose. I mean, you know, I don't know how often people get negative comments about their paintings, but you know, right. I'm lucky. Luckily, I, I haven't gotten any yet. Well, and I as a I mean, this is such a curator's question, but you know. I wonder, is there a scenario that you've ever imagined of like exhibiting them in a specific way that would be more immersive? Or do you think that that sort of uh, works in reverse? Does it make it a sort of like false um, sort of context? Is it better to just let them out and be authentic about it? Yeah, I think, I think, I think for me, it's, it's the, because they come from such a, um, busy and, and lively environment I feel like I can't reproduce that it would just like I would just be trying to reproduce my studio and I I don't I don't kind of have this like this large grand vision of what painting should be or what these paintings should be uh, in in such a way that I can kind of determine a whole space you know or kind of like bring to life an entire space like I really want them to be able to live on their own like I'm not trying to raise a cult of paintings in the same yeah. way I'm not trying to raise a cult of kids you know it's like I just want to like raise individuals and good individuals and I want them to be like strong and healthy all on their own with when they're together but also when they're apart um and I think trying to make everything a little bit like like really cohesive you know people have often asked me you know do you are you interested in painting the walls different colors and like sculpture and Yes and no, like that could be fun, but that could also be like, uh, you know, what am I giving and what am I taking away? Do I really need to do this? Can, can't we just look at paintings on their own outside right. of a lot of the other kind of like decor and orchestration that happens, you know, around larger installations? And I'm not, that's not to say that I'm completely against it, but it's, it's a much larger vision uh for painting than i than i have because i i work on each painting kind of as an individual thing on its own i don't really think of them like as like clumps uh, clumps of work that say one thing in particular yeah and i think maybe the the best thing you can do in that case in terms of installation in a gallery is uh Maybe it's just, you know, hanging that one work with care, making sure it's in a spot that feels good for that work. And, you know, I mean, and, and you are a little bit experimental as well in the way you install mm -hmm. things at different heights and um, yeah, yeah. sort of, uh, 
you know, trying to find a, a maybe a arrangement that feels good for those works and maybe that's the way that they live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I just joined a baseball team. I was writing about this this morning about how fun it is to have joined this baseball team and not kind of be like the center of the world, like on the yeah. baseball team. Like I'm, I'm one of the lesser players, <laughs> um, but I'm valued no less. You know, it's like, I'm not like, you know, hitting home runs or anything, but I'm still a part of the team and that's a nice thing. But when you make a team, you have to figure out how is, like who is gonna be the pitcher? Like, you know, everybody kind of wants to be the pitcher, um, but not everybody's gonna be a great pitcher. Some people are just gonna be better outfielders, right? And then an outfielder has their own strength. And I think painting is kind of that way too, when you're hanging the show is that, all right, who's gonna be the pitcher? Like sometimes it's really obvious, you know, like I think in, uh, in my current show now uh, at Cooper Cole, it's, you know, like the, the father time painting, the white painting. Like that's for me, that's the picture, right? That's the painting that kind of like you walk in, it gets the big wall, it gets the most attention. Yeah. And I feel like it gets the most love and energy. And that's sort of like maybe the star of the show. And then everything kind of like radiates outside of that, right? You have mm -hmm. your outfielders and your shortstop and your second and your third <laughs> and first baseman, you know, but like on the mound is father time. And I, I feel like, you know, when you're hanging a show, you have to be able to figure out is this painting better seen kind of at eye level or does it really deserve to be a bit higher? And is it okay that if you, that you're not reading every brushstroke kind of like from a two foot distance, it's a right to be a little bit further away, you know? Yeah. How uh, does it relate to the way you view or how your body exists with it? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the, the hope is that someone chooses to live with these works and that they're going to develop a sensitivity to how it is that those works also exist and how they exist in relation to them, right? Do, do they want to be so close to it? Is it okay if they're not uh, able to kind of get up and touch it? Or is it something that they need to be able to stand like eye to eye, you know, with and be able to touch it and breathe on it? Um, those are all different ways to navigate like how you hang a show, but also how you interact with art, how you interact with painting. It yeah. doesn't all have to be kind of like the, the typical museum experience or gallery experience where everything is hung at eye level. Uh, I think sometimes it's nice to have a sense of distance from something where you can't kind of see, like, you know, like the, the sun painting that's hanging over the door. It's, you know, it's a good five feet, I think, above, you know, you know, above where, you know, from where you're standing. And you can't really see the sand, you know, inside of it. You can't really see a lot of the details. I mean, you can squint and you can look, but I think that kind of that thing, that distance kind of, gets you closer it gets it creates a sense of desire because you can't kind of like bridge that um mm -hmm. and so i think when you're hanging a painting in the same way that you're making a painting you have to kind of develop a sensitivity to what the distance is going to be and what's what feels right yeah and actually that i was just wanting to ask you actually about the sun paintings the terracotta suns if you could speak about mm -hmm. them. so there's three in the show um, yeah. something you've done before so mm -hmm. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe you could speak about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, there, I, I think I had mentioned, <clears throat> I think in the press release or the statement that, that we crafted of how these terracotta suns are really, you know, they're common kind of like Southwest, uh, I, I guess, Central, I don't know about South America, but you find them on the facades of, you know, homes. It's, it's a way for people to decorate their houses. And they're really common and sometimes they're really personalized and people use 
uh, you know, they'll use paint and they'll kind of decorate them on their own. And sometimes they'll just buy them from the store as like terracotta forms and they'll just hang them just like that. Um, and for me, it's a form of sun worship. And, you know, because I, I for some reason, cannot really, uh, like none of us can escape the sun, but I cannot escape kind of painting the sun for some reason. Um, you know, I, I, I took on the task of trying to paint a lot of them uh, and then began to think of them as a form of self-portraiture and a way to kind of, I mean, I've never painted a face before. Like, I, I don't think I've ever done like direct portraiture uh, and I feel like this is the, the most direct way in which I've actually interacted with the face and which I, or that I've interacted with the body. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what else, to, what else to say other than that. It's something that I want to continue to do. Um, I wanted, I actually want to create my own terracotta sons. I'd, I'd like to be able to work with clay and actually not buy them that are not buy sons that are precast, but actually create my own and then maybe paint paint the ones that I create. And maybe at some point, maybe do some bronze suns and maybe scale up a bit. That would be fun. Um, but you know, it's all then I have to step away from painting though. And that's always the difficult thing is that uh, as much as I want to do things like sculpture, that means that I can't do painting and it's hard for me not to paint, uh, which is why maybe why my paintings are so sculptural too yeah and there i mean there is something to be said for buying them as well right that it is the sort of um same shape and same uh foundation that you would find on any any house sort of in your area and that you've yeah just, yeah i, you know, <coughs> I, I elaborated like on that i'm always looking for them you know in people's houses and it i like that i can uh, that i'm interacting with something that is something that other people that everyone is interacting with that it's common in that way and that all I'm doing is kind of giving it a, another layer of personalization yeah. you know it's like it's yeah, like, like a house you have it outside of your studio as well right like you're not yeah, even yeah yeah there's one that hangs out, <laughs> yeah there's one that hangs outside my studio and actually that you know the idea for painting them came from seeing somebody who uh painted one like it it was like a the one that actually hangs outside of my studio right now that will always hang there is more or less a copy of a really weird one that I saw hanging outside of somebody else's house that had like these big dark green eyes and like this like really kind of like vulgar like spikes and it was just it was it's almost too much it looked demonic it didn't it was it's kind of frightening when you when you look at it but I would always be drawn to it because it was just so weird and so uh, like it was inviting in the way that the sun is inviting but then you look at the sun you're like ah oh, shit like it you know don't do that <laughs> that's how i felt looking at that person's sun okay. and i thought well i'm gonna i want to do that like how yeah. can i create a sense of like you want to look at it but you shouldn't look at it but you want to look at it so you're going to look at it you know and so and then what do you get what are the benefits and what are the what are the downsides to looking at the sun there are many but um yeah yeah it's it's it it is nice to be able to to get them kind of pre-made and then really not fuss or fuss too much about the form that they're going to take. I'm really just thinking about, it's like makeup. I'm really thinking about how can you personalize something in terms of kind of um, the color that you give it, you know, which is different than like painting on a canvas and kind of like building around a canvas because it's, it's not so much about um, the application of paint. It's really, for me, it's a lot more about structure and kind of like integration of materials. And the terracotta suns do that to an extent too, but, 
not in the same way. They, I don't know. They live kind of on a different level in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I also like the idea of painting living outside. Yeah, you know, totally. Like, I love paintings outside. Like right now, the paintings that I'm working on, because it's too hot to work in my studio, I have 10 small paintings that are hanging on my fence. And I just work on them outside. And every once in a while, I'll bring them inside and I'll, I'll fuss with them a little bit. And then they just, they spend, you know, like most, you know, like 23 hours a day outside. Um, and they're just hanging on the fence, like just baking under wow. the sun. I love and that. it's nice to go outside and like see the sunlight actually hit them. And then you bring mm -hmm. them in and you think, oh, okay, that's like all of the energy that I thought was there was just sunlight. <laughs> how can I add, <laughs> how can I add that energy, but with paint, you know? That's, oh, wow. that's the hard part because, you know, it's like you really can't compete, but at least, you know, the least I can do is kind of give it some level of effort where I'm trying to, to capture a sense of like light and warmth and motion and kind of like what it is to be something that grows um, kind of like under the sun and the paintings hopefully are doing that. I don't know. That's still really early on in the process of making these, but I love the fact that they're like, they're outside sleeping you know, yeah. and then they wake up with me and they're, they're still outside doing their thing. And, um, and I also, I have a few other paintings that, that are like, I have a painting that's hanging from a tree. It's like a star-shaped painting that I cut out years ago. And, you know, it's been rained on, it's been snowed on, it snowed once in Texas, you know, in the last 20 oh years. Um, it's, <laughs> I think got it. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's like it's slowly decaying, but I love the fact that this thing that kind of looks like a piñata is just hanging there from a tree and it's just sort of like taking on a different life of its own, you know? And I don't ever want to touch it. I just want to let it just kind of like live and die on the tree. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, um, there are a lot of references to the environment in your work, mm -hmm. right? Like you're talking about the sun and snow and everything. Um, so there are materially and also symbolically in your work, there's a lot of reference to the environment and to nature. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm wondering about that night and how that sort of connects with your interest in landscape. And you've mentioned also that you dream a lot about landscapes and that sort mm -hmm. of slips into the work as well. Um, yeah. Can yeah. you speak about that a bit? Yeah, I, I mean, I, <clears throat> I feel like when I think about my work in relation to landscape, I think about it in the same way that I think about my dreams in relation to landscape is that I'm just dropped into a place and I'm in a place wondering about it and thinking about it. And there are things in the landscape that I can identify in the same way that in my dreams, there are things that I can identify and articulate because they have their own symbolic meaning, or maybe I already know it. Um, but I, I, I don't have a deep interest in the landscape in that I'm wanting to replicate everything that it is and understand everything that it is because I enjoy the mystery and the decoding part of it. And I think making myself, like I'm vaguely familiar with like every landscape that I'm in and I'm incredibly curious about every landscape that I'm in, but I'm not willing to go and do all of the work and the research to find out everything in the landscape that I'm in, because then, then the mystery just dissolves. And I like to be able to look, it's like if you learn how to read, you look at a word and you can't help but to read it. You see it and then you read it. And I like being able to go out into a landscape and have it be illegible. I like being able to go out and not know everything. 
it, sure, it's nice to go and say like, yes, that's a sycamore tree and that's an elm tree and that's a mesquite tree. And, you know, like, you know, you I are able to identify certain flowers and birds and things, but there are things that I, I, I just want to kind of leave alone and let it be mysterious. And maybe at some point I'll look it up when the moment feels right. And I feel like that's sort of how dreams function for me as well, is that you if you spend too much time trying to figure out what a dream means and you do that every single day, then you begin to develop a narrative and then that narrative begins to overtake and becomes more important than the act of creating and the act of being in a mysterious space. And I like the idea of being in a space that is mysterious to me, that I don't know, that there are places and paths that I'm not going to enter into uh, because... I just don't need to. It, it's it's it's. I think it's a matter of following impulses. What is the right way to go? What is the right way to look up? Um, and what is the thing that I want to understand at that moment? And I think sometimes just being present and in that space and taking all um, is important, um, yes. which is very different than like arriving with an agenda. Yes. Uh, and I don't. I don't think that my work is kind of agenda based. It's not really. I don't start painting. Uh, I don't start any painting with the idea that it's going to be about any one thing in the same way that I don't go for a walk uh, anywhere with, with an agenda of doing any one thing or seeing anything in particular. I'm just going. Mm-hmm. And it's the movement. It's the action. It's the, it's the progress that I'm making with my feet that's important. And in the same way that it's the progress that I'm making with a paintbrush or like a, a piece of wood or rope, that that's important. It's the it's just it's the process yeah well it's fascinating and it's really i mean because nature is so immense right like yeah i, I like what you're saying about you know not wanting to necessarily know everything or not you know maintain some mystery because it's when you think about it you'll never know everything it's a very colonial idea that you can master nature right that you can right. know everything about nature yeah uh, and so there's something really valuable in sort of having that um self-possession or self-assurance to just say okay what is it that's happening right now in my body in relation to all of this yeah yeah and i I think that really opens you up to kind of experiencing and looking at other things in ways that you haven't seen them before you know if you know something too well that you almost write it off you know it's like it's like having family it's like you know we we communicate with our families in a very particular way in a way that we wouldn't communicate with anybody else, right? You might be able to like, you know, snap at your spouse in a way that you would never snap at anybody else, right? you know, if, if they kind of rubbed you the wrong way. Um, uh, there's a, I don't know, there's just a level of like familiarity that creates or, or dissolves rather a boundary. And I like, I like the feeling, I like the boundary between me and other entities i like the the boundary between me and the landscape um i think there's kind of like an inherent respect in that boundary um and that when it's appropriate um i'll educate myself and inform myself or it will introduce itself to me and uh, in the same way that you negotiate that kind of relationship with people it's you can't just go kind of meeting everybody that you think is interesting there's a time and there's a place and sometimes that time never arrives and you have to be okay with that. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it would just be too much, too much of a task. It, I think that's, that's a different profession. I think, you know, someone who, 
you know, studies flowers, obviously, or, you know, like, or is interested kind of like in the river in particular and like its, its path and like what it does in its history. Like those things are interesting to me, but on the periphery, like my obligation is really towards painting. Um, and so if I spend too much time doing anything else, that's a lot of energy to put into other things that have nothing to do with actually making a painting. Totally. And if um, I'm, I'm curious also about this particular body of work with uh, that's at Cooper Cole right now, um, the title Father Time, and you were talking about mm. the white and blue work that's really important to you. Maybe you could speak about what that title means and why um, these works uh, represent that to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's so for me, it has like a double meaning. It's it, one is funny and the other one is just sort of, it's not really serious, but my, for some reason, my son in the last, um, I would say five months, he started calling me father and which is, you know, for him, it's a way, I think it's a, it's a, it's a form of control, right? He thinks it's funny. Yeah. I didn't think it was funny at first because they have always grown up calling me Papa. And, you know, I've always liked that Papa, like they, you know, ever since they were tiny, you know, Papa, Papa, Papa. And then at some point he was just like father. You know, and he doesn't call me Papa anymore. He just calls me father. And I was really annoyed by it at first. But then I thought, well, he thinks it's funny. And this is the way that he addresses me. And he doesn't mean it in a mean way. I think it's a way of like controlling um, how it is that he interacts with me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, because my kids don't live with me, um, I, you know, the time that I spend with them, I refer to as father time right uh in a joking way you know where i and i do spend a lot of time with them but it's it's not the same as like being able to have your children in your house um where you're kind of like you're just much much closer to them uh and they haven't lived with me for the last two years so that father time now is really really important in a way that when they're living with you it's not that you're the closeness of your children isn't important but there's kind of like a respectable distance when they're in their room and you're in the kitchen or you're in your room and you're doing your own thing. It's you, you just know that you're in different places, but under the same roof. Um, and it's, yeah, now, now that they're away, um, that father time is all the more important. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other, the other ideas that father time in relation to the sun, the sun being the thing that determines all for us anyway, it's our star. It's the one that kind of gives everything life. Um, but it's all the thing that it, it, it's also what we fight and what we work with time. It's also what it is that we have and what we use most frequently without even trying, which is time. Uh, it's something that we're engaged in constantly. We're always kind of trying to monitor we're always trying to save it, but we're also spending a lot of time wasting it. Um, it's this thing that, inevitably runs out for everyone and i think there's something really beautiful about that negotiation and that kind of persistence of the sun and that persistence of time that is just eating away at everybody you know and i don't think that's a bad thing i know that maybe that maybe that sounds like kind of like a real downer but for me it's 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 just present it's you know in the same way that the sun is present like we just like in san antonio right now it's so goddamn hot and you just can't escape it you know um, and at my studio, because it's so poorly air conditioned, I just like it's it's such it brings like such like a burden of like sweat and heat and exhaustion that you just have to learn how to live under those conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it, 
yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining too much because I, I have, you know, my studio is very nice. But anyhow, all of that to say that father time is in relation to the son, in relation to my kids. And mm -hmm. um, there's a part of it, like a pun, that is that is funny. Um, and then a part of it that, like, that's not funny, you know. That's fantastic. I actually didn't realize <laughs> the depth of the title. That's incredible. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank yeah. you so much for, for taking the time to speak. It was incredible to hear your answers and learn more about your work. Yeah, thank you so much for all the work. I appreciate the invitation to do it. Thank <laughs> you.